It's the Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. Hey, is that a geek in your pocket? Or are you just pleased to see me? Hello and welcome to the Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. And yes, two weeks in a row, no major screw-ups. So that means all is good on our end. You say that, but literally as we hit record today, I pressed the wrong button on the mouse and exited the room. <laughs> That's just known as user error. <laughs> oh, and they don't How get are you, my of, friend? They don't get more of a user error than me. Uh, it's, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? I mean, uh, we had the Q&A that you had to call off at the last minute. I did. I was ill this week. I, uh, I have a, had some sort of a bug that I picked up. I thought it was COVID. I really thought it was COVID. Hit me last weekend. Uh, by the time we got to the show, uh, we record on a Sunday, and, and I just wasn't feeling it all the way through the show. And after we'd done, I just sort of lolled about, did have, didn't have any energy to do anything. Mm. Got to Monday, I felt awful. Uh, and then Monday, Tuesday, through to Wednesday, it felt like I got the flu, but it never got any further than feeling wiped out, uh, feeling ropey, never, never developed. Lots of lots of aching muscles. Uh, and then Thursday, it just started to drift away. But I, I did take a COVID test and I thought, this is it. Uh, the boy is back in town. But thankfully not. But I'm all right now. Kind yeah. of just on the, the tail end of it now. Fantastic. So, uh, I mean, Ian, Ian Poulston Davis, who was the director of the film, which I'll review the film later in the show as part of the reviews. That's Boland's Shoes. Um, but he was supposed to be turning up for the Q&A and he had to call off shooting schedule issues. They'd had a shoot the night before for his uh, more recent project, but the weather turned against him. And so they had to carry it over to the next day. However, um, producer Teddy Dwyer was there, who people in the UK might remember her from playing Ruth in Hollyoaks, I, I recognise the name. Uh, she was in it for. She was one of Tony's exes. Uh, she was in it from nineteen ninety six to two thousand and one. Hollyoaks, no I, idea. I'm not a fan of Hollyoaks, but the wife is. So unfortunately, no. I've kind of watched Hollyoaks through the years and know too much. I know too much. I've seen things, man. <laughs> I've seen things. But then she had a recurring role for the next about eight years, coming back every now and then, and she turned up for the Q and A. She turned up early before the screening. I introduced myself to her. I had a quick chat. And, you know, I've spoken to you about how nervous I get around people who I don't know and how things like this are kind of me pushing me past, myself past my comfort zone. It's so lovely when the person who you're going to be talking in a and a is so easy to talk to. And it just put me at ease because this was the first time that I've done a and a without my wingman. Aye. I, I really missed it. I really felt for you. I was... I was uh, disappointed not to be there. I just, I just couldn't. As, as the day was getting, uh, was moving along, and I kept looking at my phone and thinking, I really, really need to get my act together. And it was getting further and further away, and and less possible that I was going to do it. So uh, yeah, I was, I was highly disappointed. But I'm glad, glad it went okay. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You can meet people who you just suddenly click with, and people mm. can chat, and people are, op- uh, are open to what you're saying occasionally and it's only happened to me occasionally you you get no spark you get no connection with the person that you're interviewing yeah i mean we had, when we did the um oxide ghost one i think the rapport on that one was fantastic yeah yeah we had a really good chat and i got the same kind of vibe with terry because oh, that's good whilst i had me questions that i wanted to get through 
we just got conversational around it and we're quite jokey with the audience and like the audience came out with some good questions as well but um rather than just good. focusing purely on this film i felt used it as an opportunity to talk to a producer and get a producer's standpoint on what the industry is and particularly you know what does a producer do how involved is she with the actual set aspect of it or is she behind the scenes and then i drew upon a I, I, I told her before we went in, it's like, I'm not going to avoid the whole soap opera thing. I've got a question on soap operas. And so I, I questioned her with regards to how people within the soap industry find it so hard to get something else because there's a snobbery within the industry. And she just went, oh, you've got me started. And said that, you know, genuinely, you look in America and the soaps and actors on soaps and they're guaranteed to be in a film next year. The, it's a stepping stone to get to films. The UK, you earn a soap and you struggle to find work afterwards because everyone looks down on soaps. Yeah. It's not as bad as it used to be. I mean, I think things like Ian McKellen, like popping up in Coronation Street a couple of years ago, have started to give it some credence that, you know, this is actual acting. But it's the pressures of soap work. I mean, they can get the script yeah. the morning of shooting, which has changed completely. And basically, you're filming in half an hour. You need to know those lines. And, you know, it's a constant treadmill. And I think that anyone who can go through that, fantastic. I mean, why she's gone through that and then gone on to be producing, which is even more juggling, as she says, spinning multiple plates at once and hoping you don't break them all. Um, It's bewildering. But she's one of those people who does a job that she knows is hard, stresses about it, but absolutely loves what she's doing. She loves what she's bringing and particularly what she's bringing to the UK indie film industry, which needs as much support as possible. Everyone out there in listener land who says there's no original films anymore and everything's a remake or a sequel. Films like Bowl and Shoes are a great little example of a film that you should be checking out. You should be supporting these these films, supporting these low-budget British indies and boosting our filmmaking community out there. And from a production company, that's what she's focusing on a lot is to try to get people's unique visions brought to the stage in the UK and actually like, you know, really working towards things. Fantastic chat. The Q&A went for just over an hour, which we, we've we've said before that we think that if a Q&A is over 20 minutes, it's a success. Yes. And I th- genuinely think that we could have sat and chatted for much longer. Uh, oh, but, that's good. You know, the night was drawing on and it was like, well, you know what? We have to call it a day at some point. Absolutely lovely. Um, Teddy Dwyer was an absolute treasure. And at the end, she said to me, it's like, oh, I can tell you've done a lot of these. And I just went, no, <laughs> I've done I've done three or four. And she went, what? I was like, and normally I've got my wingman with me. So we normally bounce the questions. This is my first one doing solo. And she was just gobsmacked. She's just like, that, was, that oh, was fantastic. Awesome. I'm so pleased for you, buddy. I'm so pleased. It, it was such well. a boost for me. And it, it was what I kind of needed this week because I've been feeling a bit run down. But um, yeah, it was a proper boost. And it's really... It's really made me feel, you know, I can do this. I can do it. You can it, do it. Well, you've, you've done this now for... 185 episodes. <laughs> 185 episodes. I mean, uh, uh, and sometimes it just feels like you're talking to yourself. <laughs> especially <laughs> you're talking to me. Especially when there's well, audio look, cats, problems, I have, to, I have to edit it. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it, it was a great highlight. Uh, it was a shame that you weren't there. I think you would have uh, got as much I'm of so the book as I did. Listen later on, guys, and you'll hear my thoughts on the actual film itself. Uh, For me, I have a music video I'm about to shoot. So I've been in the treatment. I hate writing treatments. (laughs) Nothing. I love writing a script. I hate writing treatments, especially for music videos. Uh, And so I've been working. Great song. 
So it's very easy. And I'm going against the grain. All I can say is uh, Wes Anderson is my influence on this. <laughs> Don't get overexcited, but just, just the framing stuff. Uh, but I hate writing them. Uh, I, absolutely. They are a chore to write. I love it when an artist just goes, just do what you want. We'll turn yeah. up on the day. Um, like when I, like the Def Leppard stuff I did. Just leave it to you. But because it's a new artist and this is kind of their breakthrough video, it's it's proving to be just getting it down on paper. I can see it in my head. I know exactly mm. what I'm going to shoot on the day. But at this stage, it's like, oh, I've got to get it down on paper. Hate it. So that's what I've been doing most of today and then getting distracted <laughs> by, <laughs> by Apple Plus TV. For instance, um, yeah, I get. I mean, you know, I've said before how I get pr procrastination disease constantly. I'm always distracted by other things, and especially Baldur's Gate yeah. three at the moment, which is absolutely taking every moment of my life. I'm I, hearing that, you are lucky that I have not got my console in front of me and playing Baldur's Gate three at the same time as you're sat in front of me trying to record this at this point in time because I am <laughs> so addicted to that game. Um, I, <laughs> I've got to find a new game, actually. I have to find a new game. I don't know what. Waiting <laughs> well, for Spider-Man 2, I guess. Spider-Man's only, only a short distance away. It's not long to just go in now. It's time for birthdays. Yeah. So, uh, hint, hint. It's, I mean, my birthday's March, so it's just in time for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, if you uh, want to give me an early Christmas present, either that or those uh, glasses. We need to hashtag this <laughs> so we can get uh, get Sony to send us uh, a couple of uh, review discs. Either send us that, or if, uh, or if someone wants to get me those glasses that you uh, brought as the neat thing, Oh, uh, yeah. a few weeks ago. I mean, by all means, send them our way. We're happy to try them on. <laughs> we'll take everything for free, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want free stuff now. We've done this show for 185 episodes. We want send free stuff. Freebies. We want it now. <laughs> so let's get on with the show. Uh, as ever, we do our social challenge, and you good people generally respond to our social challenge. So we ask the question, and did you, what was the question that we asked? Do you want to say? Going off the back of the Continental and also with various other prequels that are going on at present, we asked, is there a film or maybe even TV series that you've seen and you thought could really be an interesting prequel there looking at the life of this character or that character or this event that they've spoken about in the past, you know, showing how characters met or got started, etc. And to be honest... I struggled with this one. Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know I jokingly said last week, you know, it'd be great to have a prequel to those Star Wars films, which you get to see how Darth Vader became Darth Vader, because I'm sure there was a fan fiction version. But, you know, that all joking, <laughs> all joking aside, I'm not the only one who seemed to struggle. There's quite a few people oh, who right. said to me that um, it's a really tricky one because their favorite films kind of already tell you enough that you need. And because of the amount of times that a prequel has kind of powered the experience, the hesitant to put something forwards. But on that note, we did get some responses. Via Spotify, Carl Hodkin said, I'd love to see a TV series of JD and Turk's college days before they start as interns at the Sacred Hearts Hospital. I think JD has flashbacks. Yeah, he did. But a series would be hilarious. I miss Scrubs. And I'm there with you. I miss, well, I don't miss the spin-off series that they did at once the main series ended that deserve to stay in the bin I, i'm kind of there with you for um uh, seeing like all the fun that they got up to while they were in their college days but i do think part of the charm of jd and turk's whole comedic bromance is that zach and donald are such good friends themselves and you can get that 
that carries through. So it did have to be very careful with the casting if they were to make a pre prequel series to Scrubs. Yeah. Over on Twitter, JP Wooding, the original Get Carter could have had some decent prequels. Yeah, I can see that. I, I like that. Still too. seeing Carter as an assassin before the events of going up to Newcastle. Over on Blue Sky, Tiny Burrister. I think I would have loved either Jack Burton stories before or even after the one where he defeats Lopan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We want to know more about Jack Burton. There's, there's some good stuff. And I suggested they should get on that idea and cast Wyatt Russell in the role. Dennis Obi on Blue Sky. Don't really have a certain story or person they'd love to see. Um, often the unknown part of a great character makes it more interesting. Star Wars has some of the worst background story, which, yep, that's yeah, a valid agreed. point. Um, he said, don't get me wrong. Lo- he loves Star Wars. Always ready for some new content. But when it gets like this, Anakin built C-3PO. What on earth? Yeah, it, it, it's laboured kind of prequel stuff. And that's that's why people struggle with this one, because we've seen how poorly it can get done. Characters like Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers. I know enough of them. Don't need to know more. Yep. Uh, look what Rob Zombie did with his uh, adding a 30 minutes prequel elements to his Halloween remake. Awful. And then he asked whether he'd ever seen the prequel to Silence of the Lambs, which I assume he meant Hannibal Rising, which was garbage. Yeah, there have been some pretty terrible versions of it. I'm going to point out as we get through some versions which I think have been pretty good, some prequels that have, have been interesting. I've said that, you know, for a proper prequel for Silence of the Lambs, just watch Hannibal, the TV series, and that's yeah, how it should be done. Perfect. Over on Mastodon, Ashley Porcy and Cooler. Both sets of parents from Meet the Fockers. Uh, most characters in Triangle of Sadness. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future. I'd love to see a prequel with Emmett Brown. And Miracle Max and his wife. So there's some characters that they'd like to be explored in the prequel things. I think Emmett Brown could be an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. The young adventures of young Emmett. Cole Mulhall would like to know how Saunders ended up in Vienna in the Living Daylights. Salty Red Popcorn, who uh, proves that he listens to the show, because said, considering this was prompted by the Continental, which we didn't mention on the socials, but we mentioned on the show. Thanks, Salty Red. I know you listen. Uh, would it be wrong to mention nobody? No, nope, wouldn't be wrong at all. Uh, th- I think there's some interesting backstory uh, for the characters in Nobody. And also wouldn't be averse to some family film about the teenage adventure- adventures of young Emmett Brown. Seems that Emmett Brown's a popular choice. Yeah. People love that, that that Back to the Future. No one wants a sequel to Back to the Future. No one wants a remake. But everyone would be quite happy with prequels. Uh, over on Facebook, Lindsay Story. Love to see Rocket and Groot film, how they met. Don't know how it would go without James Gunn's touch in there. But, yeah, I mean, having read comics and having knowing the backstory of those th- them in the comics, yeah, there's plenty of story opportunity there for Rocket and Groot teaming up and how they how they bonded. Um, a film seeing Edward Scissorhands being put together, and why? Why would someone build that? Uh, the Black Phone needs to see where the Grabber came from, and I, I am with you there. I want to know more about the Grabber. Yeah, we spoke about that before. Owen Cooper, Knives Out prequel following Benoit Blanc's first case. Wouldn't it be interesting to do a Benoit Blanc's first case where he's rubbish, <laughs> where he's absolutely rubbish at deciphering clues because uh, he's he's never done this before. I, I, I could be there for that. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre showing why Grandpa was the best there ever was, but not one about Leatherface all over again, because we've already had one prequel, which went the wrong way. And um, a Shining anthology film showing the hotel's history over the years and how certain ghosts came That's to be That's good. Here. That's, a, That's I, I, good. I think we've got a winner there. Owen Cooper. That might, we'll win. might be. That might be bonus points of the quiz for that one. Well done. <laughs> 
I came up with uh, a Miss Marples as a as a young lady, as a as a late teen. Teen detective. Uh, why did she never marry, and why did she become a detective? I just yeah, thought that was, a, was an interesting take on a character. Why did she become a detective? That could be an interesting interesting approach. My mum stated her obvious Waterworld. She loves Waterworld. How did that world become like that? Who were Enola's parents? What's the Mariner's backstory? Yeah, again, there's a lot of different things. Waterworld was such an edited mess that you do feel that they've cut a chunk of the backstory out of it. And maybe big build a film around then. It's got a cult following. People love it now. Yeah, Everyone hates we should it talk the time. about it. Let's do it. Um, Helen Blair, she's going with Disney villains that she wants. She wants an Ursula film and a Triton, an Ursula and Triton backstory film. With Melissa McCarthy reprising the role of Ursula from the recent live-action Little Mermaid. And I am so there for that, because Melissa McCarthy, yes, I don't like Melissa McCarthy, but she owned that film. She was amazing as Ursula, and I'd love to see what led to her banishment. I think there's something there. They could really do like a Maleficent with it, where it's like a misunderstood bad character. (laughs) Al B said a prequel to The Thing would be really good. Obviously, having a bit of a joke there. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it would be I really good. Out, if there was a really yeah. good one, there would be a really good one out there, better than the <laughs> one we got. Yeah. I mean, we almost did have a good prequel, but then they shat a load of CGI all over the It was nearly there. It effects. wasn't as awful, uh, probably in memory, as it was when we saw it. But, yeah, they kind of uh, uh, screwed it, really. Yeah, screwed the pooch on that one. Um, another one that you threw out on threads. No one's on threads, but if anyone is on threads and listens to the show, please answer on threads. We, we, like we feel threads. lonely over there. You said that not a movie, but a Disney Plus series, Tales of Asgard, about the adventures of young Loki and Thor. Again, coming you from can the see comic book perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's stuff that can be delved into on that aspect. You could totally see it with a new set of actors, uh, even uh, a new Odin in it. You mm. could you could completely play in in the uh, Asgard world and find out how that kind of relationship formed between Loki and Thor. Um, Scott at work said he'd like to see, and I saw someone else come out with something similar to in response to a very similar question that went out during this week from someone else. Um, not going to hold any names to account, but that account has now been blocked. But someone answered those their their one with the Matrix, Morpheus. What made Morpheus become so sure of the following? What made him become like the the prophet that he basically was? What is his backstory? What was he before he got extracted from Matrix? Mm. Um, I think with the Matrix, there's a lot that you could do. There's a load of characters that you could go, what were they before and how did they get out? It usually works best with secondary characters that you explore those. I mean, there, there have been some good ones. So for every poor one, like Wolverine was pretty poor. We didn't need to yeah. see that movie to understand Wolverine. Yeah. Uh, as you said, the Star Wars films, there, there have been some good ones. If you think about it, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is a prequel. Yeah. Uh, I really like, and it's not a classic, but it's an enjoyable romp. Uh, that's Butch and Sundance, the early days, which kind of captures the magic and has got some some lovely casting in it. Um, it's just not as iconic as as the original version. Uh, you know, X Men First Class. Yeah, that was a prequel that worked really well. That that reinvigorated the X Men films for a short while, so they can yeah. work. But then you get you get the Star Wars prequels, and you get the prequel to uh, to Wolverine, 
to the X-Men with Wolverine. Very poor. There was talk for a long time of a, a diehard prequel of seeing young John McClane. I'm not entirely sure that that would be a good idea because you get the feeling that with John McClane, the only interesting things happened to him after Nakatomi Plaza. From that point onwards is when his life just went crazy. Yeah. Dave at work also, I mean, he said Star Wars and then like said what he meant by that. He'd like a really early prequel, which kind of shows the origins of the Force, like who constructed the first lightsaber. And that's kind of what we're hoping to be getting from Mangold's trilogy that he's working yeah. on. So Dave's actually quite happy because he wasn't, he, he'd not really heard that news. So uh, he's now buzzing at the idea that what he wants might actually come true from a good director. My suggestions, and it took me all week thinking of these. Now, the Vega brothers from Tarantino's films. Tarantino himself, way back in the days of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, said that he had ideas for doing the Vega brothers, um, Vic and Vincent, and doing like prequel stories for them. But he never got round to them. I'm still there for that if he ever decides to do it. And even Kill Bill. I'd love to see those characters when they were working as a unit, before everything went wrong, before he shot the bride. Yeah, And I think generally with Tarantino, there's a load of his characters that you think there could be something interesting to do a prequel with. All of the cast of Reservoir Dogs. What is Mr. White's story? What is Mr. Blonde's story? You know, they've all, they're all interesting characters that you don't get much of who they were but you get enough to make you go, could be something interesting here. And that's that's what Tarantino's good at, is he drops you into a story when so much has happened, but doesn't go, I'm telling you what happened first. He just lets you just ride with it. And so there's potential for prequels that he could draw upon. I know that he's only doing one more film, but that hasn't stopped him from saying he might start developing for TV. And I think he could do a TV series drawing on his characters from his films and doing backstories of. If you're listening, Quentin, please. The Vega Brothers, at least. Give us it. We've been wanting it since uh, Pulp Fiction came out. <laughs> and my killer one. Oh, yeah. Ready. And the more I think about this one, the more I think, oh, yeah. I'd like a film called Quint. And it's a prequel to Jaws. And it's who Quint was um, leading up to the events of the Indianapolis, which changed. Which Spielberg was, was, was knocking around at one point when he yep. was looking to come back to do a Jaws sequel. That was his bitch. Yeah. And I, I think that there's there's something interesting in that character of Quint because that Indianapolis monologue story, you get the feeling that that's what changed him from who he was to who to the grizzled, like angry at the world kind of man that he he became, and it'd be interesting to see that trans that change of a character, um, and finishing with like you know that horror of being in the water with the the shark. Oh, yeah, Quint the movie, get it greenlit now. Get that script done. That gives us a perfect segue into this week's question. So this week's question is based around, well, I showed my film students this week uh, a black and white movie all about Eve. And for a lot of them, that was the first black and white film that they'd seen remarkably. And they were impressed. They thought they were going to dislike it based on the fact that it was old. But genuinely, the majority thought it was an intriguing, and it's a great film, by the way, but what black and white film gets you every time? The, the fact that it doesn't have colour that makes it more of attraction. Is it a horror film? Is it the universal uh, uh, staple of horror films uh, that would only work in black and white because of the nature of them? Is it more up to date with, with films like The Artist, for instance? 
black and white films, what's the one film that stands out for you in a monochromatic land? You know where to get in touch with us. And Andy, that is... Over on social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads. Just search for Film File UK. Carry a pigeon. Find us there. Yeah, carry a pigeon. Catch the pigeon. Catch the pigeon. Um, just pop it all. Pop, pop the answer once we pop the question out during this week. Uh, or if you're not on any social media platforms because you think the government's out to get you, send us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We look forward to hearing your answers next week. But let's look ahead to this week. What have we got on this week's show? Of course, we've got chatter and banter galore. We've also got reviews of... Exorcist Believer, which landed at cinemas with a thud. Bowling Shoes, which um, is on limited release across the UK at the moment. And Blackberry, which is yet another look at a corporate film. Seems to be a wave of these at the moment. We'll discuss the opening episode of Loki, which landed on Disney Plus this last week. We've got a deep dive into Robert Rodriguez's The Faculty. But before any of that, we've got the news and we've got the box office. We've entered into the dark nights and dark mornings. That means a sprinkling of horror films, uh, which really kicks off with The Exorcist. Has it vomited its way into pole position or has it been denounced by the church and landing nowhere? Top five in the US this weekend. Exorcist Believer opens in first place, taking 26.5 million. Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, 11.3 million to keep it into second place. Saw X is in third place this week, another 7.8 million added to its total. The Creator took another 6.2 million. And The Blind is in fifth place with 3.2 million. Here in the UK, again, the top spot is taken up by The Exorcist Believer with a 1.6 million opening weekend. The Creator holds into second place, taking another million this weekend. Saw X in third place. The Great Escaper opens in fourth. And Haunting in Venice is still bringing audiences in and retaining fifth place. So, Exorcist Believer, not the strongest of opens, but with a production budget of only 30 million, it has at least passed that after its early weekend. So you could say success until you factor in that Universal picked up the rights for this for an alleged 400 million. Wow. So they were looking to make that money back over three films. Yes. And with the, the general response to this film has not been good. So I, I predict a huge drop off next week on this one because it's been scoring really low with audiences as well as critics. I think, I, I don't get why they spent 400 million to get the, the rights to the franchise. That's the risk. Yeah. I mean, like I say, the film itself has made the money back, but they're not going to make their money back at this rate on the actual rights issues that they bought. It's a bit weird. It's a bit strange. It is interesting as well, noticing the, I've spotted the advert online today and I've, I've, casually mocked it from universal um if anyone's listening from universal sorry but i did this they're, they're advertising it online is from the producers of lists of films why aren't they saying from the director of the halloween yeah trilogy? i was just about to say maybe it's because that makes people realize what they're going to be getting and those halloween films people kind of didn't like by the end of them did they so i it, it always worries me when something's from the producers of because that means that they're trying to hide the director for some reason. Anyway, you'll find out what I thought of the film later in the show. No spoilers. Okay. So that's the box office. Let's take a look at the news. And we know, as of the recording of this episode, the actor's strike 
is still ongoing, even though I believe talks have been taking place. There have been quite a lot of talks over the past week and a lot of work is being done internally over this weekend to reconcile everything that's been discussed before they can go back and reconvene. There's no particular movement at this point in time. There's no news as to what's been discussed, but it does look with the amount of talks that are taking place that we might have a hopeful end to the actors' strike. On the other strike news this week, I don't know whether you saw this one, that Drew Barrymore has now discovered the consequences yes. of her actions. Yeah, I saw so, that. I, I, I thought about you when I saw it, because I remember we, <laughs> we talked about it on the show. Yes, uh, for those who can't remember, about two weeks before the writer's strike actually ended, Drew Barrymore made the decision that she was going to start her talk show back up and got a lot of backlash. And then did a crocodile tears statement about like how everyone's struggling in the industry and, oh, she doesn't want to do this to the writers, but we're still going to go ahead with it. And everyone basically went, yeah, we have memories and we will remember this. And then she got to the end of that week and went, oh, I've made a mistake. No, I'm not going to start filming again. And literally four days later, the writer's strike was over. So if she had waited, she wouldn't have had all that backlash. Well, her writers have uh, decided not to go back to work for her. And good, because you get what you deserve. Well done, Drew Barrymore. You made enemies. I don't know where to go from that one. I'm going to try and give something a little bit more upbeat. So we've been talking about uh, the Fantastic Four for ages. And during the strike, there have been a litany of casting ideas. However, were some of them right? Because director Mike Shankman says the team has been cast. But you are unlikely to see anything until the strike is is over. Are we going to get any of the following? Are we going to see Adam Driver, Jake Gyllenhaal, Matt Smith, apparently all in the running to play Reed Richards, Vanessa Kirby mm-hmm. and Joseph Quinn? Are they a lock for Sue Storm and Johnny Storm? And from the bear, even Moss Backrack, is he our Ben Grimm? We yeah. don't know, but apparently they've been cast. So in the yes. next couple of weeks, we might get... Something that's not in Pinch of Salt Corner, but we're going to get our Fantastic Four. Yeah, in um, Matt's words, he knows that the internet is very excited to find out who's been cast, and he's excited to share it, but he can't do it just yet. But one thing that he has gone on to state is that the strike hasn't had much impact on the pre-production, which has been continuing. In his words, we've been non-stop. Despite the strikes, yes, we've been working with the effects and with production design and building our world, and that's been incredibly exciting. You know, how do you translate those skills into live action in dynamic ways? Because some things that work beautifully in John Byrne and Jack Kirby are a little tougher when you're filming them, (laughs) as evidenced by the previous Fantastic Four films. Yes. (laughs) How do you make sure that things are exciting, but also grounded in a scientific thing, which is also a part of the Fantastic Four that I love? There's some stuff I'm super excited about. I can't say too much. We don't know how much this is going to differ from Tim's story and Josh Trank's attempts to bring it to the screen. All that we know is that he said that we're doing things very differently from a story standpoint, from an approach to the filmmaking standpoint that really fits the material. Fantastic Four is scheduled to be released on May the 2nd, 2025, if the strike ends soon. We're just now at the stage that we're hoping that the strike ends so that we can start to see things going to production. But it is nice that they're spending this time to work out the the, the effects work, the vision, etc., so that once they can start filming, got it all set as to where they're going to be going with it rather than film it and then go uh, cobble some effects together afterwards so um, i actually think that this could benefit the film 
because it, it'll give the effect studios that pre-planning time to start to work out what works and what doesn't before it gets filmed. I don't know much about this game. You're, you're our resident game expert. Cyberpunk 2077. Now, I know the legends of it being a, a truly difficult game, not in the way that it's played, but uh, it had an initial and disastrous release. Anyway, it's now been confirmed that a live-action adaptation is in the works from a media company with some s- serious jowls to them. Uh, CD Projekt Red, the video game developers behind the Witcher franchise, has announced that they'll be collaborating with anonymous content to develop a live-action project set in the futuristic world of Cyberpunk 2077. The media company is behind the Emmy-winning series uh, True Detective and Mr. Robot, uh, as well as award-winning films The Revenant and Spotlight. So it's at early stages right now. There is not a writer on board, but it looks like it is moving forward. Yes, uh, I'm a big cyberpunk fan, not just the video game. I mean, the video game, I'm not a huge fan of. I think stylistically, it's great. And I do need to jump back on because they fixed a lot of the problems. But I'm an old role player. I used to play Cyberpunk 2020 tabletop RPG. So I know the lore, I know the history, and I know what can be done with that. And Cyberpunk itself was inspired by things like Neuromancer, all the writings of William Gibson, Philip K. Dick, all that cyberpunk text novels that are out there, which opens it up for so much of a beautiful world. The world that was created for like the tabletop game and also the video game of Night City is such a perfect setting. You think Blade Runner and that kind of like city city tech design, that's what Night City is. That's what cyberpunk is. Style over substance, but it's with some great action. Matrix is elements of cyberpunk in there. I'm well and truly excited, especially with the studio who gave us the absolutely fantastic Mr. Robot, which thematically shares a lot of similarities to some of my favorite cyberpunk-esque stories and even some of the campaigns that I wrote and ran. So I I am well and truly up for this. Cannot wait. Um, I want to just quickly flip back to um, casting rumors because we also know that James Gunn has said that he has cast more roles in the upcoming DC. Again, we have to wait until the end of the strike. Over at Marvel, we also know that there's more news on the Blade, Blade film. It does actually still exist on their production schedule there. It's still on their production schedule, but guess what? It's gone back what? to writing stage again. They've scrapped the oh, script okay, and starting again. This is this is like the 14th time or something that they've started again. I'll do it. <laughs> Look, guys, just, just give me a call. I've got an idea. I've got a take. Just just give me a call. I'll do it. The last time that there was a complete rewrite, it was True, De- True Detective creator Nick Pizzolatto, who was yeah. set to pen it. But now that's been scrapped, apparently, and Marvel have called for a total revamp of the last draft. The French filmmaker, Jan Domenga, who gave us a 71, is still attached to direct whenever that happens. Um, alongside Maya Shah Ali, it was going to star Mia Goth, Delroy Lindo and Aaron Pierre. However, the shutdown took place and now there's going to be rewrites. We don't know what's going to happen by the end of this. Um, it could be a completely different cast by the end of it. I think. Ali's really being patient at this point in time because I think he was like four years old when he first announced that he was casting <laughs> the Blade movie. And, and the guy's like approaching 97 now. Um, yeah, he is producing apparently... it as well. So he's, he's got to be involved in that creative process. So maybe it's him. It's still slated for a February the 14th, 2025 release, but don't expect that to stay. 
especially when it's now looking like Marvel are reshuffling a lot more of their stuff, particularly when it comes to their Disney Plus series. It's looking like next year we're possibly only going to get Echo and Agatha, Dark Old Diaries, and maybe Ironheart, but maybe not. We already know that Daredevil Born Again is now, because of the halt on production, looking like it's going to spill over into 2025. Everything's getting sh- shuffled back. So I wouldn't be surprised if Blade ends up getting shuffled to the back end of 25 or even into 2026 at this rate. So he's apparently been wanting to do this for 50 years since he saw it for the first time. And then he had an epiphany. And it's a movie that's going to require a lot of growth and a lot of tools. But it seems that there is a production start date for Guillermo del Toro's upcoming Frankenstein adaptation. Yet it's cast and we're looking to start shooting in February. And what a cast. Christopher Waltz has just been added to the cast. Uh, I think from what I hear, I think he's going to be playing Dr. Polidori. Andrew Garfield, who I believe is going to be the creature. Oscar Isaac as the scientist. And your favourite, Mia Goth as the actress. I mean, it's a good cast. I just brought that up on my screen. I'm very disappointed that Google are calling Andrew Garfield's character Frankenstein. No, he's the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor. (laughs) Oh, sorry. A little bit of a nerd rant there. I mean, that's a great cast. It's Del Toro who tackles his approach to classic horror kind of approaches. I'm interested to see what he can do with it. He's got a beautiful vision for horror. So he's calling this version Dr. Frankenstein. We'll wait and see, but it looks like it's all been well starting February. Remember, it must have been about seven, seven and a half years ago when we last spoke about the Spawn movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was about the time we first started talking about Blade. (laughs) Uh, There's been talk of the Spawn movie basically since the last movie came out and nothing's ever happened. But in recent years, it's kind of picked up pace because Blumhouse picked up the rights. Uh, a various succession of writers were linked to it. McFarlane finally revealed, like, finally accepted that he can't write, so let the professionals do it. And he can't direct, so let the professionals do it. But Jason Blum spoke with comicbook.com during press for The Exorcist Believer and has set a firm target date for the film. 2025 is when Spawn is going to come out. I stand by that. I stand by that. Okay. Okay, Jason. I'll believe you when it happens, but, you know. Good on you. Um, McFarlane, for those who don't know who, who Spawn is, it's a character that Todd McFarlane created after leaving Marvel. And it's it's a supernatural hell warrior who is on Earth as a trial and test, but wants to regain his humanity, having lost five years of his life due to his bargaining with the devil. Uh, McFarlane describes the tone of the film to be something between Amazon's The Boys and a traditional horror movie. And he says that the plans for the film are ambitious, They're not looking for big extravaganza, but they're also not looking for an $8 million horror movie budget. We're taking a pretty big moonshot of what we think we can pull off in Hollywood. If we can pull it off, it'll be a big deal financially. Once you get into those conversations, they're going to want to do it a way that they can do it and get their money back. Um, It was previously adapted to film way back in 1997. And there was also a fantastic HBO animated series, which came out around about the same time, which I always advise people, watch the animated series, don't watch the movie. It was generally assumed that it had been shelved, that it had been forgotten about, but it has now been revealed that Labyrinth 2 is still in development from director Scott Derrickson. Uh, Scott Derrickson at the moment is promoting his segment of uh, the VHS series. Mm, VHS 85. 
yeah he said it's hard it's a hard hard project to turn into something commercially viable because it's so imaginative but if we can find a way to do it and do it cheaply then we are still looking at making this film happen do we need a sequel I don't know. It's one of those films that I, I don't really think there's a necessity for it. They've been asked how would they handle the Goblin King character, especially in the wake of Bowie's passing. And he said that it's still in kind of developments. He can't say, as in his words, I think we had a really cool idea, but I don't want to blow that in case the movie does not get made. I'd like to think that he's got a good approach to make it not just feel like a an unnecessary cash-in almost 30 yeah. years later. Not that that happens very often. Um, oh, yeah, it happens far too often. <laughs> far too often these days mike flanagan we love how we adapt stephen king materials we do uh, uh, and he's starting with his uh, fall of the house of usher series which uh, lands this week on netflix he's also due to start filming his adaptation of a stephen king short story the life of chuck which was first announced oh, yeah, way back in it's a weird story to be able to adapt uh, i i don't know what angle you could take on it. But let's be honest, Flanagan's version of Dr. Sleep was better than King's book. Yes. I like how he tackles. I mean, he's like with Darabont. He seems to get Stephen King's material. He seems to be able to tap into it. Even the elements that Stephen King himself didn't quite tap into and struggled with, which we saw with Dr. Sleep. You know, Dr. Sleep, the book, not great. It's good, but not great. Film, much better. With uh, The Life of Chuck, um, this project was first announced back in May. The author's work involves three separate stories that are linked to tell the biography of the supposedly ordinary man named Charles Krantz. However, the story unfolds in reverse. It begins with his death from brain tumour at 39 and ends with his childhood in a supposedly haunted house. Part of the 2020 anthology, If It Bleeds. Yeah, I've read that. It was, it was one of my neat things, in fact, this, this book. And casting, which was announced way back when it was first pitched. Loki star Tom Hiddleston set to play the title character and Mark Hamill is playing the role of Albie once the SAG-AFTRA interim agreement allows them to film. Chris Rock is working alongside producer Steven Spielberg mm. to direct, yes you heard me correctly, direct a Martin Luther King Jr. biopic. Who saw that coming? Yes. Did you have it on your on your directing cards Andy? I bet I you did. Think, I don't think anyone's ever had that on their directing cards. I am just quickly looking to see if Chris Rock has directed anything. Oh, yes, he uh, top five in 2014, a comedy film. Yeah, that's what you'd expect from Chris Rock. So this is a, a big leap. Mm. I'm, and I'm not going to diss it until we see it. It's going to be based on Jonathan Elg's biography, King, A Life, which debuted to critical acclaim back in May this year and earned, went on to earn a National Book Award nomination. The film draws upon newly unearthed FBI information on King, with the publisher calling it an intimate portrayal of King as a courageous but emotionally troubled individual who demanded peaceful protest while grappling with his own frailties and a government that hunted him. Very interesting subject matter. Is Chris Rock the right man for it? I guess we'll find out. But if he succeeds in this, if he knocks this out of the park, I think this is going to change a lot of people's opinions of what Chris Rock can do. Yeah. I'm all, always interested to see when an actor suddenly takes up a, a hefty project which seems out of their out of their normal forte, especially to go and direct it. Let's see. A quickie news to round off. First of all, apparently the new D wave of DC films are going to shoot primarily here in the UK. It's like it's coming home. Yeah, like a tradition. You think about yeah. Batman, first Superman movie. Yep. Uh, Warner Bros. Discovery is ex expanding its Levinston Studios complex in the UK uh, to serve as the home base for DC studio productions. 
as well as DC Studio Chiefs James Gunn and Peter Safran, who were reportedly consulted about the plans. There will be some stuff shot in Atlanta for Superman Legacy, but basically the UK is going to be the home of the mass production of um, DC properties. So uh, that's something to be proud of. Total Recall might be getting another adaptation. Okay. It's rumoured to be in consideration over at Sony Pictures for another adaptation. We've had Paul Verhoeven's one, which bears no relevance to the books, but it's a great film. We've had Len Wiseman's attempt to adapt the book that turned into a mess of a homage to the original film and missed the book. There's still something there that could be adapted from that book to make it worthwhile. Apple TV has premiered the trailer for The Buccaneers, its new drama series adaptation of Edith Wharton's unfinished novel, which will debut its first three episodes on November the 8th, followed by new episodes every week up until the middle of December, which follows a group of fun-loving American girls who enter the tightly corseted London season of 1870s, an Anglo-American culture clash ensues. Apple TV services, of course I'm watching. We've had some trailer drops this week. It's a Wonderful Knife, which puts a slasher twist on a Christmas classic. That looks fun. That yeah, looks yeah. utter fun. In the same way that Freaky was fun. Yeah, when, when it was pitched... And I read like, oh, they're going to do an It's a Wonderful Life kind of horror. I'm not sure. But now I've seen that trailer, I'm I'm in with this one. And there was also Silent Night, John Woo's Action Fest Christmas special. Well, it's good to see John Woo back doing action. Uh, I hope he gets it to be very John Woo in a kind of uh, killer's kind of way. Uh, There was Thanksgiving from Eli Roth. Okay, moving on. I don't know whether you caught that one. (laughs) It just looks like typical E.I. Roth, unfortunately. Who thought that swimming pools were scary? Well, according to uh, Bloomhouse, uh, Night Swim and the trailer, fear lies underneath the surface in that particular mm. film. There's been a load of horrors uh, trailers. Yeah, uh, really yeah the strangest one week. for me. Have you seen the Dr. Jekyll trailer from Hammer? Oh, is that the Eddie Hazard? Yeah. Yes. Very, very <laughs> odd. That's all yes. I can say. Uh, there's also uh, another horror film, There's Something in the Barn which plays on all our fear of there's something being in the barn. Looks a bit generic, but maybe a bit passable. And for the action fest, you can't go wrong with a Statham film. And he's got the beekeeper, which the trailer landed this week. And it is just, this is the, exactly the same character that he's played in every film since The Machinist. He's playing the same kind of role. You know what to expect. It's Statham with his charm. And I'm the first day. I will be watching this as soon as it comes out. What What interested me about that was it's directed by David Ayer. Yes, who we, we we've got some love for here. Maybe not that Suicide Squad film that was ed- edited out of his hands, but we've got love for pretty much all of his other stuff. He's got a he's got a unique sharp eye. And just to round off with a couple more quick pieces, George Miller's Fury Road prequel film Furiosa is apparently looking to have its premiere at next year's Cannes Film Festival. Oh, okay. So it's nearly done then. We might be getting into a situation again, like we had this year, where is Cannes really the place that you premiere these kind of films? Mm. Expect a lot of negative backlash from critics when audiences find that they love it, because this is not a Cannes film, but it means that it's close to getting finished. And Universal Pictures International are going to be the distributor for the Antoine Fouquier-directed Michael Jackson biopic called Michael which will star Jackson's real-life nephew, Jafar Jackson, as the singer. Lionsgate will be handling the film domestically in the US, and the film aims to explore all aspects of Jackson's life, including his most iconic performances. John Logan penned the script, and filming is set to begin once the strike resolves. And that is almost it for this week's news. But sadly, before we go, uh, just to mention the sad passing of film director 
unique voice of a film director at that. Uh, Terence Davis has died at the age of 77. Uh, an idiosyncratic British film director who was responsible for such films as Distant Voices, Still Lives, The House of Mirth, and most recently, Benediction, about the World War II poet Siegfried Sassoon. Yeah, didn't have a didn't have a huge career, not a lot of CV entries, but always had a unique vision. You know, films such as Neon Bible and uh, 2016's um, look at the life of American poet Emily Dickinson, um, A Quiet Passion, was uh, well and truly high praise. It was five stars across the board with the majority of the critics. It's always a sad loss when anyone anyone leaves this world. Yeah, it is a sad loss, Andy. And he was a really a unique director with a unique voice. And that's the news for this week. Before we move on to our deep dive, just to say, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast, your favourite movie geek podcast. I'm sure it is, because you know what? Andy, it's my favourite. It really, it's really mine is. as well. It's your favourite too. Yeah, yeah. Why, why shouldn't it not be? All you have to do, head over to your favourite podcast platform, search for the film file, remember to hit the subscription button, and to leave a like. Go on. You know you want to. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. So as we previously said on the show, we are looking this month with an eye to Halloween. All our films are going to be a little bit on the scary side. And this week, we're going back to 1998 for a combination of horror and sci-fi as we welcome you to the faculty. From the writer of Scream and Scream 2, and the director of Desperado and From Dusk Till Dawn, comes a new science fiction thriller. The students at Harrington High have always suspected their teachers were from another planet. This time, they're right. Now, these six students won't just question authority, they'll have to destroy it. The Faculty. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. With a screenplay by Scream's Kevin Williamson. The film starred Josh Harnett, Elijah Wood, Jonathan Brewster, Clea Duvall, Laura Harris, uh, Salma Hayek. Came out in December 1998. It was Rodriguez's first studio film. And while it, oh, it didn't do great at the box office, it has now developed a cult following. Welcome to the world of the faculty. So we were in an era post-Scream where Kevin Williamson ruled the teen horror films and Robert Rodriguez had just come off the back end of his independent films. He'd already made El Mariachi and Dust Till Dawn. This felt like his first proper studio endeavour. And it kind of lacks that kinetic energy that Rodriguez brings to his films. Yeah. But it's an interesting film that upon seeing it again, there's quite a bit I liked, and that's mainly that homage to Invasion of the Body Snatchers and a little bit of the thing. Yeah, it, it doesn't fit. When you look at El Mariachi, Desperado and Dust Till Dawn, they have his fingerprints all over them. He basically scripted, shot, edited, everything was him. This was a jobbing gig for him. And this is more a Kevin Williamson film than a Robert Rodriguez film. Rodriguez is simply pointing a camera and shooting things. Uh, but Kevin Williamson, who, though, for those who think, I know that name. Why do I know that name? Williamson made his name with things like Scream. I know what you did last summer. 
then Scream 2, then Halloween H2O, and became really prominent in that late 90s, moving on to TV shows such as Dawson's Creek, which he wrote, created, and executive produced. The guy was all over. If you could define the late 90s with the name of one writer, it's Kevin Williamson. The same way that the 80s are um, John Hughes. You say John Hughes, and that's the 80s. The yeah. 90s were Williamson. And there's a reason why he was so well-established at that era, because he tapped into all the tropes that we talk about very frequently on this show, but he knowingly tapped into them and he flipped them and played them different ways. Scream being the finest example of this, but even Halloween H2O did a good bit of genre flipping. It's self-referential. It's a word of what it is. And so when his name was tagged to the faculty, you kind of knew what to expect. And as Lee said, it's a teen high school version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And it knows it because it references it halfway through the film with a line of, where's the pod people? Yeah, to the students of Harrington High, uh, the principal and the teachers have always been, shall we say, a little bit odd. But lately, they've been behaving in a mostly alien kind of way as they've been controlled by otherworldly parasites. The faculty tried to infect students one by one, but cheerleader Delilah, played by Jordana Brewster, football player Stan by Sean Hatosi, and drug dealer Zeke, Josh Harnett, as well as the new girl Mary Beth, Laura Harris, team up with some of their other classmates to fight back against these parasitic alien invaders. It's a lot of fun. It mm. doesn't feel like a Robert Rodriguez film. But you know what? I quite like it. It's not great, but I do like it. I rewatched it for the first time since it came out this week in preparation for the show. And it's one of them that it's been so long since I last watched, watched it. I was worried it wouldn't live up to my memory. And the fact that it's not spoken about much. Whenever people talk about Robert Rodriguez, no one ever talks about this. And I've, over the years, I've kind of convinced myself that maybe it was bad. And that's why no one talks about it. But I think I'm going to start a movement now to talk about this film as much as possible because I think everyone should watch this film because it is, it is like you say, it's fun. It didn't do great at the box office because I think we were getting to the burnout phase of this kind yeah. of film. This self-referential teen horror was kind of becoming a bit too cliche. Yeah, it's a little bit meta, isn't it? As you said, there's the line actually from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's got a great cast across it. The cast, you're looking at Salma Hayek's in there. Only a minor role, but of course she was, because at that point in time, she was Rodriguez's muse. Famke Jansen, Robert Patrick, um, like you say, there was Laura Harris. Clea Duval, absolutely brilliant in this. Although her character, who's the goth girl, does suffer from that thing that I hate when by the end of the film, the goth girl takes off her makeup so she can oh, be really yes. beautiful like the other girls. And that's... I'm fine with the the way that Williamson kind of plays the cliches because normally he plays them in a referential nodding kind of way. But this feels this feels as bad as Breakfast Club for how they did exactly the same thing. It, it, it was the it was the teen girl to princess trope, teen nerdy girl to, to princess yeah. trope. But you look at the, the young cast in this and Josh Hartnett. I mean, he was on a, a rise at this point, And then he's another one who should have gone to such superstardom but i think you know when you then tag yourself onto a michael bay film and ruin your career you're not going to go anywhere after there but he's great in this as the drug dealer he's very he's not a particularly likable character but you grow to like him and elijah wood as casey the the nerdy character of the group and what i like about this is it, it plays those tropes of 
people from all the different sections of, of the school society kind of have to come together and bond and see past each other's differences to work to stop this menace. It's pure fun. Laura Harris. Oh, I forgot she was in this. She yeah, yeah, she was great in it. Magnificent as Mary Beth. She she went on to wow me in films such as Severance or um, as Daisy Adair in the Dead Like Me series, which was one of my favourite shows of the early 2000s. But it's one of those films that you look at now and you just sit for most of the time smiling and grinning at seeing these faces pop up who you might not have seen on film for the past two decades because most of them kind of stymied their careers just after this, except for obviously Elijah Wood, who had the biggest career move of anyone straight after this because he finished on this whilst he was becoming a hobbit. Yeah, it's it's it, it fills out that kind of play on the typical high school social horror movies which were kind of prevalent at the time mm. but it's done with some great effects some really clever dialogue which you would expect from kevin williamson um the interplay between all the characters is is smart uh the action sequences are good it, it doesn't feel like a robert rodriguez film but you know what it, it is just a good time you can't overthink it because if you try to do that it, it doesn't work but it's it's a, more than just uh, a, an atypical slasher movie. That sci-fi element gives it gives it an extra point for me. It doesn't rely on jump scares, which is nice. It relies on a bit of an unnerving terror in a close environment. You could even like, you know, we've said body snatchers, but you could even draw the comparisons to the thing and just use the school as the isolated Antarctic outpost that they're trapped in and they need to stop the contagion from getting out of there. Everyone seems to be having fun in there. And like you say, the effects are good. They look a bit wobbly around the edges, but even when they're wobbly around the edges, it's done in a way that you kind of go, you know what, that kind of works for what this film is. And as you'd expect from other films of this era, these teen slasher genre, the music in this, it's actually, I mean, it's of the age, but it's a fun load of tracks that you just can't help but go, oh, remember this track? This is a nostalgia berry of a film. Because you've got, like, The Kids Aren't All Right by The Offspring in there. You've got the um, remixes of Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, Class of 99. You've got Solar Silence cover version of School's Out. It's You just basically sit here going, oh, that track, add that to my Spotify playlist. Add that to my Spotify playlist. Because Kevin yeah. Williamson films always did this. This is a Kevin Williamson film. It's not a Robert Rodriguez film. Rodriguez does a good job of it, but it's got no essence of Rodriguez in it. For good or bad, because bearing in mind he followed this with the Spy Kids films, I think I think this was the last good Rodriguez film that we could be really, really happy with. But I've got to say, I think we we genuinely like it. it it's not great. Oh yeah. But if you want to kill ninety minutes of your time with an enjoyable horror sci-fi romp, then then give it a go. In this this build up to uh, uh, to Halloween, I think it fits perfectly in with a cold night glass of wine and i think you'll have a blast with it particularly if you're cine literate because yes. you will spot all the nods all the references and all the little tropes that they're playing with and you'll enjoy how they they kind of twist around them and have fun with them and just just watch it to be, enjoy robert patrick playing an absolute nasty piece of work who kind of becomes a, a nice person when he's possessed <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And if we want to join the faculty, where can we find it? 
Uh, very easy if you're in the UK. If you've got Sky Movies, it's on Sky Movies right now. If not, go out there and get the DVD or rent it on any streaming service. It's out there. It's well worth picking up and it's worth adding to a collection. Now I've re-watched it for the first time in so long. I'm going to get myself a nice Blu-ray copy of it to add to my collection because I will be revisiting this one next year for, for the Halloween period again. We'll be back again next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So Andy, get the ball rolling with... What are you going to get the ball rolling with? Shall we start with The Exorcist Believer? Shall we? Now, you know that I was quite interested in this. And then I I heard your review. (laughs) And then I heard uh, Mark Commode's review. And as we all know that Mark Commode is the uh, absolute uh, go-to guy for The Exorcist. It's his all-time. He's the expert. He is the expert. Uh, And I heard his. And uh, man. (laughs) I've not heard Commode's review yet. Uh, I'm saving that until I finish mine, simply because I don't want to be influenced by what he's going to say. Yeah. But I've got a nagging suspicion we're going to say a lot of the same things. Wherever those girls Chip. went, they brought something back with them. Something's going on with my daughter. It's happening to my daughter, too. Is that Catherine's heartbeat? They're beating in sync. One girl lives, one girl dies. You get to choose. Now, in hindsight, I'm not entirely sure why I was anticipating anything good from this. David Gordon Green has made exactly one film which I enjoyed, Pineapple Express, and even that was probably more down to the writing from Rogan and Goldberg. With his foray into horror legacy sequels of recent years, the dreadful Halloween reboot trilogy, It's not like all the warning signs weren't there. But still, I was given some hope when the trailers landed. They looked decent enough, and as the short-lived TV series of recent years showed, there's a lot of potential to be tapped in the Exorcist franchise. With Ellen Burstyn joining the cast, reprising her role as Chris McNeil, surely this was going to be a sequel that makes up for the other films that spun off from that classic original. Thirteen years ago, a photographer named Victor, played by Leslie Odom Jr., and his wife are caught in an earthquake in Haiti. His wife is injured and the decision must be made to save her life or the couple's unborn child. Cut to present day and Victor is now a single dad raising his daughter Angela and struggling with life's pressures. When Angela and her friend Catherine go missing in the woods before winding up in a barn three days later with no memories of the last 72 hours, it's the start of a chain of events that leads the families to believe that the children are possessed, requiring the need of an exorcist to help them and forcing a reason for Chris McNeil's pop up. It's clear from this film that David Gordon Green hasn't actually seen The Exorcist. And I posit the idea that he simply read the synopsis on Wikipedia before basing his screenplay concept on what he thought The Exorcist was. You see, despite the title, much of the original film isn't really focused on the exorcism itself, but instead is a character study of Chris and Reagan and their relationship, and indeed Father Karras. The possession is central more as an avenue to explore the guilt and anguish that all the characters carry with them before the ritual itself delivers the shocking impact. Disbelief in the religious nature of the possession forms a huge chunk of that first film as a doubter is forced to confront the possible and probable reality that heaven and hell are real. And then you come to this mess of a film, which simply can't wait to jump into rituals. And despite having a lead character, Victor, be an atheist, 
swiftly have him suddenly be the first one to immediately decide that the girls must be possessed whilst the deeply religious folk around him are still in doubt. That's only a fraction of the problems with the characterizations on display in this film. As with the worst horrors of recent years, and I'm looking at you, the Halloween franchise from David Gordon Green, Exorcist Believer relies on jump scares and loud noises in attempt to cover up any lack of atmosphere and genuine chills. This is notable right from the opening moment when the screen flips from black to loud barking dogs. Wait a minute. Wasn't there a dog fighting at the beginning of The Exorcist? Yeah. The original film did open with a dogfight, but not in an, oh, that made you jump moment. And in fact, there's a lot of moments in this legacy sequel which are simply trying to echo the beats of the original, but lack any of the build-up atmosphere or deserving nature of such a stunt. It's almost like a parody at times in the manner that it cheaply copies bits of the first film. And then you come to the use of Chris McNeil, who has now become estranged from her daughter Regan after she wrote a book about her experience that strangely covers everything that she wasn't party to and would therefore know nothing about. The inclusion of her could have been something to benefit the film, but instead it is simply a nod and a wink and an excuse to create a shock moment. The worst element of her appearance comes when she says, I guess the priests didn't let me watch my daughter's exorcism because of the patriarchy. I mean, let's ignore the fact that two priests died to save her and her daughter from being possessed or killed, just so that we can have a write-on statement about the patriarchy and go for the cool award. At that point in the film, I had as much respect for the attempts of Green and his cohorts as he clearly has for the original film. It's an utterly abhorrent and out-of-character line that benefits nothing and highlights simply how Green doesn't know the original film at all. The rest of the film devolves rapidly into a barrage of possession tropes, jump scares and shock effects, with the final exorcism scene being almost laughable as opposed to chilling and disturbing. The original film's ending will sit with you for decades. This one will be swiftly forgotten by the time you get to the door of the cinema. The only scary thing about this film is the threat that Green has two more on the way. Who'd have thought I'd be living in a time when a legacy sequel to Saw was far superior to a legacy sequel to Exorcist? Avoid this at all costs. Repossessed, the spoof with Leslie Nielsen, was a better sequel to The Exorcist than this. Well, as you guessed, Andy didn't like that. Time to call a priest. That's what I say. Get a priest in here. ASAP. My head is spinning round at this point in time. (laughs) Have you got a a palate cleanser after that one? So in order to bring myself back into some kind of like warmth and some good joy, let's talk about Boland's shoes. Annie? Are you sure you're well enough? Do I look well enough? Are you from Liverpool originally? No. You tell me if they would do anything else. Got that? Yeah, I'm usually very good at uh, spotting them. Spotting what? Accents. Stay calm. Don't argue. I wondered, you know, if I'd recognise you if I saw you again. I'd rather stay here and have a laugh at my mate Jimbo here. I've been someone else, Jimmy. 
Are you gonna be Penny or Sadie? You can't be both. I've been lying to you. I have no idea what's going on, but whatever it is, I can take it. I'm so, so sorry that you've suffered alone for so long. Written and directed by Ian Poulston Davis and starring Timothy Spall and Leanne Best, Bowling Shoes is a British drama that focuses on mental health issues driven by guilt that has weighed heavy on the minds of two siblings who became lost in the care system over the years. Starting in the early 70s, where a group of children from a Liverpool orphanage are taken to see T-Rex play a gig, something the children and the faculty that operated the orphanage are all excited for. Getting to see the band and seeing backstage was a night to remember for the party. But the part of the whole experience that will have the biggest impact is the terrible crash of their coach afterwards, resulting in the death of several of the group and changing the life paths of the rest. Decades later, Penny, played by Leanne Best, who is now living in North Wales and married to a local vicar, is taking an annual pilgrimage to the grave of Mark Bolan to join others paying respects to the memory of the iconic singer. There she witnesses a withdrawn man, Timothy Spall, who begins blowing massive bubbles for the group before he suffers a massive epileptic fit. Penny recognises this man immediately as Jimmy, a bullied kid from the orphanage she grew up in, who is diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And as the pair reconnect, secrets are unveiled and old regrets and guilt are brought to the surface. The story of this film is packed with a lot of topics all at once. And due to the tight runtime, it does feel a little overloaded at parts. But it's carried along beautifully through the amazing central performances from both Spall and Best. Spall is the big name here, and he's a national treasure of an actor. It would be quite easy for him to step into a project like this and steal the film from underneath everyone else with casual abandon. But instead, he delivers a powerfully understated performance that allows others to breathe and grow around him. And indeed, boosts the profile of the supporting cast who share the screen time with him. His character's humble, stooped, awkward, insecure, haunted by memories of a troubled past. And Spall shows it in every glance, every flicker of a smile, every frown, every bit of behaviour. And then you take a look at Best, who has a wide catalogue of support roles in TV and film over the years. But here simply makes you ask, why doesn't she get more central performances? because she grabs your attention from the start and carries the core bulk of the story and emotion through with her. By the time it gets to her monologue of regrets towards the end of the film, I had tears streaking down my face as I'd completely connected with her on a deep level. The pair together on screen are absolutely magnificent. That's not to say that the rest of the cast aren't. In fact, everyone, right down to the child cast in the opening act, are fantastic. The film looks superb too. And I need to make a particular note about the beautiful side of Liverpool that is glimpsed through an almost dreamlike lens during the scenes when Penny and Jimmy are reconnecting. Being from Liverpool myself, those moments made me homesick and tapped into how those from outside the town could find the beauty that residents take for granted. Much like how Penny and Jimmy used to see North Wales as a magical land from their Liverpool standpoint. Again, something I can identify with. This is a strong first-time outing for Ian Poulston Davis as a writer and director, and the themes within resonated well within me. It ensured that I was caught up in the drama. This is certainly one that I recommend checking out. I was disappointed, as I said earlier, that I couldn't make it. I was looking forward to to seeing it, and especially, you know, uh, for the musical element, because that's one of my favourite times in music. And thirdly, we have Blackberry, yet another look at a corporation in a quirky kind of way. (laughs) 
that's become a thing, hasn't it? We talked about this the other week. We've had uh, Dumb Money. We've had Air. We've had the Tetris movie, the Beanie Baby movie. And now we've got now we've got this. Any good? Picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. What do you call it? It's called a BlackBerry. You guys have no idea how to run a company. If we put more phones on these networks, they're going to crash. You said they were the best engineers in the world. I said they're the best engineers in Canada. I created this entire market. In the middle of a hostile takeover! This is another one of those films in the recent wave of tech nerd culture explorations that takes a sometimes comical look at real life business. Drawn from the book Losing the Signal by Jackie McNash and Sean Silkoff, the tale follows how BlackBerry started up from financially irresponsible beginnings with the two tech nerds, Mike Lazaridis, played by Jay Baruchel, and Doug Fregan, played by Matt Johnson, needing Jim Balseal, played by Glenn Howerton, and his bullish business behaviour to shepherd them to success, leading to the company becoming the original driving force behind the mobile phone industry. However, failure to keep up with the times and financial issues slowly led to the company's downfall. There's a feeling of deja vu watching this film, and even though I didn't know the ins and outs of BlackBerry's start and end, due to other films following similar companies in their paths over the years, it felt like I already knew what was going to happen. But thanks to the central characters being cast so well, it doesn't matter too much as what we're given is a fun, well-paced insight into not just a slice of time for a business, but the whole journey of BlackBerry from dominant start to 0% finish. Baruchel is central to the whole film, and in his role he becomes almost unrecognisable as an actor, genuinely inhabiting the part of Lazaridis himself. The humour within is sharp, smart and fast, but never feels out of place or laboured or forced in. It takes comic cues from some of the absurdity of the whole situation, rather than stretching the situation to make it comical. The two hours of runtime didn't grow tired at all. And here, upon hearing news that an extended TV series cut of the film, which will add in more scenes and play over three episodes, excites me because I'd happily sit through more of this story. Blackberry may be just another in the line of Disney history comedies that are dropping recently, but don't let that put you off seeing it. It makes me wonder where you're going to go next with these business, uh, business movies. Uh, let's move on to something that we've both seen. And let's be honest, it's, it's no secret. Marvel hasn't had a particularly great 2023. The third Ant-Man movie failed to uh, attract viewers and convince critics. Of course, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 offered a much-needed respite. Then came Secret Invasion, which is wildly regarded as the weakest Marvel show released so far on Disney+. However, I liked it. Uh, And now we're back in familiar territory with season two of Loki, and the question is, can Marvel, can the charm of Marvel work again with so many recent ups and downs? Anyway, it premiered on Friday. I've seen it, Andy, and you? Yep, I've seen it as well. This is going to sound strange. I've been pulled through time. You just disappeared. I can't keep looking at it because it's horrible. It's up to us to save this place. You've got about an hour. You've got about five minutes. You better run! Loki, come on! Absolutely not. Loki Season 2, streaming October 5th on Disney+. Plus. I think when we discussed Loki Season 1, I actually said to you, 
I didn't have the love for it that everybody else seemed to do. I felt, and I think it was the fact that it was shot during uh, uh, during the lockdowns, that it felt very stagey. Lots of just two characters just talking in 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 a mm. scene with very little moving it along. And I know it's highly regarded as being one of the favourites, and I think that's down to to Hiddleston just because he's so darn charming. I've enjoyed the first episode of this much more than I enjoyed season one. I had a lot of love for season one and I approached this hoping to be able to follow through with it because there was that worry that maybe season one was was so good you can't really get better than it and you shouldn't really try to continue it. And I can't wait for episode two because by the end of that first episode, I realised that I need Loki in my life every week. Hiddleston's just so, so effortlessly charming it's a confusing muddled plot and i love it for every aspect of the confusion that it's got uh kihu kwan is a great addition to the great. cast adds some absolute brilliant comic charm they do a bill and ted's time travel kind of like fixing of things that something is happening in the past because they're making it happen in the past so they can get something right now and they're so nonchalant about it it's just like oh is he talking to you in the past oh yeah that's why i'm suddenly remembering this Hey, brilliant. I love the fact that it's just playing loose and free with time travel because you could get bogged down in the specifics of how time travel works, particularly in the TVA. But they just explain it off going, well, that shouldn't happen in here because time doesn't work like that here. It's like, well, it is now. Okay, we're doing with it. It's fun. The energy of it was great. And I do agree with you that last last season did feel stagey because of the limited amount of people on sets, etc., caused by COVID. It's broken free of that now. So it feels a lot more dynamic. It feels there's a lot more interaction going on between all characters at once. I am so in with this. This is so much fun and I can't wait to see how it goes, even though I'm not really too sure what's happening yet. Yeah, I mean, it was overloaded like the first season, especially the very first episode of season one, overloaded with exposition and sort of talk of timey-wimey mechanics. Uh, but the plots, the plots... Uh, sticks for this one in a way that it didn't for me. The execution is energetic, uh, engaging, and charming, and you have a, a roller coaster ride with it. Hiddleston loves this character. You can tell his his interaction with Owen Wilson is what was missing for me from season one. It built, but they have such great screen charisma. There's the mystery. I, I can't really tell you what was going on. I don't know. But I had a darn good time with it. I am looking forward, like you, for, for the next episode. Uh, and the production design is is fabulous. Yeah. And the direction is, is as I said, crazy and energetic. Had a, a fantastic time with it. Much more so than I did uh, by this point in, in season one. I did read that um, they've said that anyone who's saying that it's confusing, this season is deliberately confusing. You're supposed to be confused for most of it. And it should all make sense by the end. So we've probably got four more episodes of us going, I've no idea what's happening, but I'm enjoying it before we suddenly go, oh, that's what's happening. And the excellent premise, tons and tons of potential laid out for us. It, as just Andy said, the larger puzzle hopefully will be clear by the end of it. And let's hope that Marvel can repeat some of the same magic, which has looked as though it's been, it's been lacking uh, over the last year or so. That's the reviews. Andy, what's going to land over the next week? Get me excited. 
there won't be too much to get excited at at cinemas. There's some otherhood, which is another Adam Deacon spoof of um, adulthood, kidulthood kind of films. Adam, grow up. Uh, Friday the 13th gets a re-release for Friday the 13th. Mean Streets oh, wow. gets a 50th anniversary release. Wow. I've never seen it in the cinema. Well, you've got your chance this week. Taylor Swift, The Era's Tour, dominates the box office this coming weekend. The Miracle That's Club gets released. Cassius X, Becoming Ali, also gets released. Over on streaming and TV, now TV and Sky is where you want to be because the Fablemans lands this week, and that's well worth checking out. And also Champions lands on there this week. Netflix is all about um, Mike Flanagan's Fall of the House of Usher, which I've got my eye on. Amazon, it's out on cinema release at the moment, but The Burial lands on Amazon next week. And over on Disney+, Plus, The Boogeyman lands this week. Goosebumps Season 1. And Once Upon a Studio which is um, a celebration of the 100-year anniversary of Disney animation by having all of the animated characters from over the past 100 years trying to come together to get a group photo, but everything's going wrong. And this sounds utterly charming with a mix of 2D hand-drawn and CG animation to bring to life 100 years of celebration. And finally, Paramount Plus, Frasier Season 1. Yes, the new season of Frasier lands this week. We'll be able to let you know whether it's going to be a neat thing or if we don't mention it, it means that Andy hated it. <laughs> uh, and that, folks, that I think uh, ends this particular episode. But before we go, yeah, you know this. It's a time for our neat things, uh, stuff that we've enjoyed, whether that's a book, a movie, uh, a, a great meal. We don't care. As long as we enjoy it, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, your neat thing for this week. My neat thing for this week now, I, I loved the film when it came out a year ago and the BBC TV series of it, the first four episodes landed on iPlayer last week and I've ploughed through them and that is Boiling Point. The Stephen Graham film has been expanded out to a TV series set after the events of that single take film that was just a marvel of cinematic creation and it picks up on the characters further down the line now that they've got a new restaurant that they're working in except for Stephen Graham's Andy who after his heart attack is now kind of alienated from the rest of the group and the series doesn't follow the single take approach of the film because it follows a more normal series approach where we get to see the lives of them at home we get to see what happens outside of work that doesn't help with the pressures of the environment but the pressures in the kitchen are still present and it's still one of the most stress-provoking elements of this show the same way that the film was the cast are pretty much all back especially in the lead role as carly vanette robinson who is absolutely magnificent you've got hannah walters is back on board you've got a few new faces within there but you also have Stephen og who most people okay. most people bizarrely recognise from Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> and in this one, he plays a new sous chef who comes in on the second or third episode, and he's absolutely magnificent. He's quite creepy and lecherous at times, but all the cast are brilliant, and all of them have got stories that are really deep, meaningful, heartfelt. They, they're not like all likeable. Some of them you instantly take a dislike to, but then as with any good series should do, it puts another perspective on them as it goes along. I have loved this series as much as I loved the film. And I think it was a great way to expand upon that single take film that was just like a snapshot of lives. Now we get to see 
where those that pressure cooker element all came from, and it's all their personal lives that are going on. Absolutely brilliant. That's on iPlayer at the moment. Get it checked out. Boiling point. Uh, my neat thing this week is, and I've just started reading it, so I'm not a long way in, but boy, I can't put it down. Yes, you know my love for Stephen King and his new novel, Holly, landed this week. It follows the adventures of Holly Gibney, who made her first appearance in the Mr. Mercedes series, which included uh, Finders Keepers and End of the Watch, and also turned up as a supporting character in The Outsider. This came out only a couple of weeks ago. I'm in the middle of reading it, and it is so, so good. Uh, King at his best. I love King's detective novels and his mystery novels as much as I love his uh, his horror. And this opens with a very strange sense of a peculiar horror story. Starts in 2012. Uh, a creative writing teacher in a university town is jogging on a late evening when he sees two elderly colleagues turn out to kidnap him and imprison him. Then we jump to 2021. I'm the heart of COVID lockdowns. And Holly Gibney, who has just finished participating in her mother's funeral over Zoom, uh, suddenly has uh, to take on a new case, that of a missing teenage girl. Slowly, Holly is beginning to connect the dots between the teenage girl and other disappearances in the neighbourhood those many years ago. You can tell that King loves this character. He keeps bringing her back. And in her own book, she could be a character who would uh, who could get lost, but she's become dogged and resourceful. Uh, and despite a character who lives with autism uh, and is on the spectrum, uh, is an ob obsessive compulsive, King's love for her has turned her into a first-rate detective. Uh, she's been played many times on the screen. I think this book so far is uh, is ripe for a TV adaptation because the world of Holly Gibney, while rooted not firmly in our reality, uh, gives us an insight into, into a much darker world. Having such a good time with it, I cannot put this book down. It's a sly commentary on people like Trump uh, and on the COVID and uh, of isolation and of anti-vaxxers. But despite all that, it's a great mystery. I'll let you know what I've done. But so far, so good. And that, folks, that's us done for this week. I think we've just made it under the two hours mark. Few, because I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. Were lights going to go off? Were we going to explode? I don't know. The world but, um, ends. That's what the happens. World ends. <laughs> um, thanks for joining us. We'll be back again next week uh, with another episode. In the meantime, I'm going to be watching. So I'm, I've got a few films on my radar this week. I'm not doing what loads of people out there are doing this, like watching a horror film every day for. October. I don't truck with that kind of mentality. Time. Well, whilst I'll watch a film every day, if you try to commit to just watching one genre, guaranteed 10 days in, you start to get tired yeah. of it. And then it becomes a chore to watch things. And watching films should never be a chore. It should always be a pleasure. So I'm just watching what tickles my fancy. Oh, I don't know, Andy. I watched Haunted Mansion last night. That was a chore. That's not on my radar to watch. I noticed that it dropped on Disney+. Plus. It, it can stay on Disney+. Plus. It's not getting watched. I am going to be watching Totally Killer tonight, so I'll talk about that next week. I'll tell you what, I'll review it next week. So, Andy, they've been setting us up over the years with their ETs and their Men in Black movies just so no one would believe it would ever happen. Go for it. Twist yes. my head. <laughs> I wish someone twisted my head off while I was watching it.
uh, insert trailer and then I'll insert my review once I've finished and edited out whatever swear words I've got having it. <laughs> I love that sting. <laughs> I know, it always makes me laugh because I listened to this in the in the car uh, on the way to work and it always gets to that bit and it always makes me always makes me smile. <laughs> Directed by Robert Rodriguez. 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 Uh, Yippee doo. <laughs> Hang on just a second. <laughs> What? Where's that coming from? What? Have you got a noise coming through? Just give me a second, Andy. It's just got weird music playing from somewhere. <laughs> We've got a window open in the background. I have no idea where. Very bizarre. You're still there? I'm still here, yet. It got really quiet. <laughs> it must be my, I think it's my headphones. Oh, that's it. Have you found it? <laughs> have you sorted? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> iTunes kicked in. Just iTunes kicked in <laughs> mysteriously. I was like listening to, uh, I'm thinking I can hear music. Is it in my head? Sorry, just go by. I did, I really did that. I'm going, maybe that should, be a, that should be a challenge for one week. We've got an idea at work. What's that? Uh, me, me, me and one of the guys at work have said that there's, we're go, they're going to be a British one. The British are going to enter this and it's going to be the Colin the Caterpillar. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, there, there you go. Uh, Get it Steve written. Coogan will play the head of, Ald, uh, Hel, head of Lidl. And be all like, whoa, there's a caterpillar. We can make one of them. Bosh, it's out. Stephen Fry will be the head of Marks and Spencer's. Oh, we're just not having it. No, no, this is disgraceful. You, um, you've gone down to, you've gone down quite the pre-production <laughs> process on this one. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm writing the script right now. <laughs> this is going to be great. 